0: Good evening, Team Krulak community, and welcome back to another episode of Down the Rabbit Hole on the Russia-Ukraine War. Uh, Major Ian Brown, Operations Officer at the Krulak Center here, and as uh, as we have in the past, we're joined by Dr. Yuval Weber, a distinguished fellow at the Krulak Center and our Russian subject matter expert at Marine Corps University. But we are also excited to welcome to uh, to this special series Dr. Rosella kapela zielinski who you may remember from previous broadcast episodes. In fact, I think this is the third time we've had you on, if my math, math on Friday is correct. Um, she's a associate professor of political science at Boston University, a visiting fellow at Clements Center for National Security at UT Austin, and she's also one of the Kulak Center's non-resident fellows. And so uh, we're very happy to have uh, kind of a, a double header here with, uh, with our two guests. So what we're gonna do here today is, it's been a couple weeks since our last episode, You've going to get us up to speed on some of the major developments going on in the war in Ukraine right now. And then why we asked Dr. Zelensky in here is because there's a uh, emerging crisis that's been getting some headlines and we're getting to the point where, uh, where it's coming, it's coming is going to be shifting into it's here, what do we do now? And that's been the concern over the disruption of wheat exports from Ukraine, which is a, a significant provider to large parts of the world. So it's going to kind of be our focus area today. So Yuval, Rosella, welcome, and uh, Yuval, I'll turn it over to you first.
1: Thank you, Ian. Uh, w- wonderful to see you again, Rosella. I think you're officially a friend of the pod. First time on the pod, but enough Krulak Center stuff. Um, Nessa no, so thank you for that, uh, Ian. And really over the last couple of weeks, there's, let's say, three major items on, in terms of like the war uh, to bring us up to speed and to really get to the heart of what is today's episode going to be about We weaponization of food, uh, and the impending sort of international food crisis, the results speak much more about. So, in terms of what is the larger picture uh, before we even get to the conflict. We also have the issue of, um. NATO expansion Uh, when we were last speaking, the, the Finland and uh, Sweden had applied for uh, application. They had applied to uh, join NATO Uh, and. Although the Finnish uh, president had said that he had uh, secured consent from every other NATO member at that time, it emerged quickly that uh, Turkey, of which we'll hear much more in a consistently negative light over the course of this episode, uh, Turkey came up with a series of objections to uh, Finland and especially to Sweden. And the objections that Finland and Sweden had, even though the Finnish president said that he had gotten cons- uh, you know approval. Uh, and support from Erdogan in the negotiations ahead of time is that Sweden uh, ostensibly uh, supports the PKK, which is a Kurdish separatist organization that also has an armed wing, which is trying to bring down the Turkish state and or provide for its own homeland within Turkey itself. So because of Erdogan uh, trying to um, destroy everything Kurdish in his country, uh, he is putting a block on Sweden, Swedish and Finnish accession, to NATO right now. So over the last couple of weeks, what we've seen is a series of negotiations between uh, NATO and within itself of for Turkey, United States, Turkey, Finland, uh, Sweden, and Turkey, all coming into what are several issues. Uh, first and foremost, it is uh, Turkey wants uh, Sweden to extradite a number of its uh, Kurdish origin citizens to Turkey to face, face prosecution. Which is a non starter. It also wants Finland and Sweden to uh, relax and end its uh, weapons exports ban uh, from their countries to Finland. That seems to be the easiest thing. But also, uh, Turkey is using this opportunity uh, to try to get weapons concessions from the United States, both the F 16 and F 35 fighter jets, um, as well as relaxation of sanctions that had been imposed on Turkey when they bought Russian missile defense. The S 400 system, so it seemed that Finland and Sweden were going to join NATO pretty quickly, which would have really changed the entire European security architecture in the high north with the, uh, with the Arctic uh, in the Baltic sea, as well as in. uh, And by diverting Russian attention and manpower away from these southern areas, um, it would have also changed obviously the security situation in the black sea as well. So that's the big picture issue in terms of the european security architecture in terms of uh the fighting the fighting is in essence it's world war 1 esque there are trenches uh there is reconquering the same pieces of land over and over uh, the front line goes a couple of kilometers uh west in russia's favor and then the next day after a counteroffensive it goes east uh, in ukraine's favor So, a lot of the fighting has gone um, to try to get one of the major cities of the Lugansk uh, oblast, the Lugansk region, uh, called Sever Donetsk. And that place uh, is going to be a lot like um, Mariupol at the very end of it. There will be a place that exists on a map, but everything that is there will be destroyed. And this is what we've seen in terms of Russia's way of war Uh, Russia's way of war is very destruction forward. In terms of breaking a place, you know, reducing it to rubble, so that the uh, so that they break the morale of the defenders. So along Russia's uh, line of control, which now, when we think about looking at the map, how much of Ukraine Russia controls? Uh, as President Zelensky said, it is roughly twenty percent of um, of Ukraine. And on days when Russia's offensive offensives are going much more uh, directly forward. can get up to 25 percent of Ukraine being under Russian control. And so what's going to direct basically this summer fighting campaign, as we talked about I think last couple weeks, it's going to be about weaponry. Russia is at this point, um, they have more soldiers, but they're not getting the fresh ones in quickly, but they have a decisive advantage in terms of heavy artillery. And as I say, the sweat of the artillery saves the blood of the infantry. So the Russians are okay with spending as many soldiers as need be. They have a casualty intensive way of war, destruction intensive way of war. They're going to do as much as it takes in order to push Ukraine um, along this, this sort of, from east to west, and then from southeast um, up to uh, Kherson and uh, Dnipro. So those are going to be the two main salients. Now that Russia's given up, basically trying to conquer, half the country uh, within the span of a week, they've reduced the amount of territory they're trying to control, which is allowing them to fight according to their doctrine um, as described. So really this is gonna come down to whether the United States and its partners are going to provide Ukraine with the heavy artillery. And as has been mentioned by a number of um, important people like uh, Ukraine's foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleba, the Secretary of State for the United States, Antony Blinken, basically Europe is running out of uh, Soviet-era artillery. So the question now is, is the basically NATO standard art- artillery going to get to Ukraine? Is the, the weaponry going to get to Ukraine? Are they going to be able to push the Russians back? That remains the open question, and really the, the amount of time is this summer into the next couple months after that, Because once the current Russian conscript class graduates, Russia is then going to have another several tens of thousands, if not low hundred thousand plus uh, soldiers that are going to be able to relieve the soldiers that are currently fighting. And so when we then think about all of these issues, where is NATO going? How is the fighting going to grind along? What are the weaponry that is going to be seen here? We have seen that over the last couple of days, and this is where we really get to the issues of Rosella and thinking about the weaponization of food and things of this nature is that what is the war that Russia is trying to fight. And over the last couple of days, President Putin has openly said, because the other day was. uh, The 350th uh, birthday of Peter, the great. Um, and Peter, the great said, you know, or Putin said about Peter the great when Peter, the great was fighting against uh, Sweden. This is not a war of conquest. This is not a war of annexation, but just the return of lands that always belong to Russia. They belong to Russia essentially by some version of divine right. So, therefore, when we see how Russia has been fighting over the last couple of months, and we have these comments that this stuff, that these areas just belong, and the things in these areas just belong, and the people in these areas just belong to Russia, then we can sort of have a sense that Russia is going for a big war of annexation, And everything on those lands, again, by imperial right, belongs to Russia. And I think this is a a good point to sort of, you know, sort of pause the idea of where we've gone in terms of the fighting and think about where is, in essence, the issue of grain and food, international food crisis. And I think at this point, I don't know, Ian, if you wanted to ask the questions, or we can just sort of roll in, Rosella. What are we actually seeing in terms of international food crisis and the weaponization of grain and food within Ukraine itself?
2: Sure. So let me just kind of back up and give some context to uh, wheat production and wheat consumption and where it's coming from, because this isn't going to affect everyone the same. Uh, So first, uh, since wheat is something, especially in the United States, we take for granted as a wheat producing uh, state, Let me just say stress how important wheat is for human civilization. Yes. Civilization back to the fertile crescent millennia ago. You don't have human civilization without wheat or grain. Okay. Um, Today, wheat provides about 20% of our daily caloric needs and is the world's most important protein source, providing about 20% of our daily protein intake. So it is critical to our diets. Um, So, let me just. Say that right. Wheat is critical. Let's elevate it um, in our importance in our minds. And we really see, and where it's going to affect is developing countries. An increasing demand for wheat because of their population growth over the past couple of decades and urbanization. Right, you're not producing wheat uh, when you're living in these cities, so you have a higher demand uh, for imported wheat. Okay. Now, Ukraine is not a top wheat. It is in the top ten of wheat-producing countries. Uh, Just for some context, the EU produces about 18% of world wheat production. Within that, France is the most. Uh, China, 17%. Most of that is for their own self-consumption. They're actually a wheat importer. India, 14. Russia, I'm going to note, 10. U.S., 6. Ukraine is 3. Ukraine produces a lot, 3% of the world's wheat. Now, who is this going to affect? Well, it's one of the larger exporters of wheat. So, they're not... Um, just producing it for themselves, which is going to be currently a concern, right? Do they even produce enough to survive right now? Uh, but they're really producing. For developing countries in Africa and the Middle East. And let me just say a couple of things about Ukrainian. wheat uh. On itself, so, well, if you have a map of Ukraine in your head about the Eastern 3rd. Of that map. Is your, uh, your wheat producing region? So you've all mentioned uh, Dnipro, right? So if you draw a lap from Kharkiv, Dnipro, Kherson, and over, that's a lot of what um, is the grain of Ukraine. Um, so all of this area, as was being mentioned, that's being bombed, World War I trenches, mined, is destroying this farmland. Um, We were talking earlier before this podcast, and I was stressing that we should not expect the wheat crisis that's brewing, and we'll talk about the blockade in a second, uh, that's brewing because it's being blocked. It's going to actually continue. So we need to prepare for a multi year event. Farming season in Ukraine is passing. Um, This land is going to be destroyed. Uh, It may be bombed out so bad that subsoil is going to be brought up to the surface. Um, Farmers can't. We're already seeing reports, right? They're afraid to farm the land uh, because of mines as well. Aside from other dangers, even if they want to farm the land. We have uh, problems in labor, Uh, there's not enough labor. We have sadly everyone uh, at a young age who hasn't fled the country. Are or have passed away been killed are in fighting forces. So, we have a labor shortage that's going to continue for a while. Now, we also have reports of stolen agriculture equipment. That's another problem. So, uh, we have now low labor, no land, little agriculture equipment, stolen to little fertilizer and gas to run the equipment and fuel shortages. So, we are creating a perfect storm for the moment because, again, most of the wheat is being held up um, because blocking of Ukrainian ports. But this is going to be even worse in the years to come. Oh, and not to mention destroying grain silos. So everything about Ukrainian wheat production is being destroyed.
1: i um, seen, I think on this, it's it's worth mentioning that you, Ukrainian sources, both are like on the ground as well as government sources, have reported that everything associated with grain production and export, uh, including one of the few things that you didn't mention in that was all the, the railway equipment, the cars as well as the granaries that hold it before going out for export, all of these different points along the way for grain production have been targeted. So we can see that part of the war objectives for Russia is to create, in essence, a destruction of one of Ukraine's major export sectors, but also to create the crisis that then focuses attention on what Russia wants, which is pressure on Ukraine to basically stop resisting.
2: And so let's go into where that source of pressure could come from, and that is those most affected. So those most affected by this wheat crisis, Ukrainian wheat crisis, as mentioned, is uh, African countries and the Middle East, uh, notably Egypt. I think I read something about 80 to 82% of Egyptian grain comes from Ukraine. So uh, Somalia, Benin, and they are all going through, and sadly, their own internal famine and food crises. So this is compounding what is already going on inside. So we have this set of countries that are the most affected. We're seeing already reports of them buying stolen Russian wheat. Uh, sorry, stolen Ukrainian wheat from Russia. They're most affected, but they're also, sadly, in a position to try to put pressure on Russia or Ukraine either way, but put pressure on, uh, parties involved to ease the situation. We could talk about ways they can do that and what that might look like. Um. And it's also
1: worth mentioning in this context that at the beginning of the conflict, uh, Russia also. issued an export ban on its own grains, its own wheat, its own fertilizer in order to maintain domestic supplies. So, ostensibly, Russia could say, oh, there's a a grain crisis in this world. Why don't we export our surplus? Russia is also not exporting its surplus at the same time that we're talking about these issues as well.
2: And, you know, as we talk about wheat, I want to, again, let's go to global geography for a second. Why one could say, well, the United States could export wheat and fill this gap or Canada, major wheat producers. India is a major wheat producer. They're having heat waves. They're kind of out. So there are other states uh, that are global wheat producers that could export their wheat. But it's really, really difficult, and the distance matters, right? So freight is a pr- complicated right now. So you want to make sure you have uh, the freight to do it, uh, and the port access, and all of these other resources that would make this happen. Now. This also matters, so aside from overcoming the tyranny of distance, all of this affects prices, right? High demand, wheat shortages, global wheat shortages is not a great year for wheat in general um, for various reasons. Again, India heat wave being one example, and now we add these high cost of shipping to getting extra wheat to these really far off locations. So is it even feasible to purchase wheat coming from farther afield? for these African and Middle Eastern countries. Now, where does the the crisis, there's so many crises here, I don't even know, like, I think that's almost an overused word now. Um, But, so where does this mean politically for these states? Well, aside from the uh, the worst being food insecurity and famine, political instability. We, being able to feed your population and being able to eat, we have seen it in many contexts, wartime and peacetime is a source of political instability. Um, and that could mean protest that could mean riots that could be parties voted out of office and mass migration. And so the downstream effects of this. Will be really, uh, devastating. Beyond again, just making sure we're getting food in people's mouths. Um. Yes, and so we can talk if you guys want to talk about some lessons, some things we can do wherever you want to go.
1: Right and 1 of the, um. Sort of like directly to that, the the Arab Spring, which uh, which helped topple long-serving uh, Egyptian leader Hosni Mubarak, is that the Mubarak government during basically a a wheat shortage had because wheat was becoming much more expensive, decided to reduce the amount of subsidies they provided, you know, to regular Egyptian citizens buying buying bread, and that in the midst of the issues with, you know. Um, Tunisia and the Arab Spring in those countries helped create the the importation of the revolutionary fervor. And of course, when we think. Uh, French Revolution, you know, let them eat cake. This is a consistent theme throughout history. If people are hungry. Previously, extreme political outcomes are now much more within within the mainstream, much more plausible. And so that's a a core issue that I I would like to ask you um, when we see. And this may be something that you you were going to mention in a different context, but we see lots of countries which are clearly in a food insecure moment. There's a crisis, a global food crisis. What is, in essence, um, the ability of the United States, Canada, other countries? Where is the international response to this? Is it through the UN? Is it through a, a smaller amount of countries? What can be done to help Benin? stay afloat Egypt not have a revolution and things of that nature
2: so let me go back uh, to world war one for a second and let me draw out some lessons that may be applicable here um I, I actually my first broadcast a little while back was on the book manuscript I was working on on wheat and world war one so I'm not an agricultural specialist but I read more than you ever want to know about wheat and world war one And so, for context, again, closing of the Dardanelles, 1914, 1915, cuts off Russian wheat and Ukrainian wheat. (laughs) And so we have that context that's the same. And again, thinking about the multi-year effect of war on wheat production, France, all those trenches going through France, all that bombing, especially in its eastern, northern eastern region, all, and that's their grain producing region, totally wiped out, and it's wiped out for decades. So, we have a lot of similarities. So, we have shortages of wheat going to uh, the allies, um, mostly France, UK, Italy. Now, <laughs> the problem here, and you get bread riots, right? Everything I'm talking about, there's a point where the leaders of these countries are so concerned. They, they're not, they're always concerned about the war, but they become more concerned about wheat. They see Russia going through internal turmoil and its revolution because of mismanaged wheat. Um, that they're like, oh, my God, that's it food security. wheat above the actual war effort. Um, even in 1918, they actually stop. Shipping munitions in favor of shipping wheat. So, I just really, I just really want to stress how important this is that feeding your people and eating was more (laughs) more important for a moment than the actual war effort itself and munitions. Um, Okay, so what these allied countries do. The United States, France, uh, Italy, and eventually everybody else is they start to coordinate their wheat purchases. They realize it's not just supply, it's prices and that's why I keep bringing up shipping and I keep bringing up prices because prices being priced out of being able to eat is equally as important as not having the food in front of you. Right? Same thing. Um, and so they're like, well, we need to figure out a way to lower prices and to coordinate our demands. So everyone's getting enough food to meet their caloric intake. Now they do that by working together and creating a monopsony and becoming a single buyer in the wheat market and saying, listen. If we're going to buy wheat from United States, European countries from Canada, from Argentina, we need to act as 1 and we need to coordinate. So that way, no, 1's bidding past each other. So what these countries, if they have a little bit of the market power to do, should think about how to speak as one voice. So that's the first thing. Let's, if their wheat purchase are coming from one place, let's start to coordinate uh, amongst ourselves in the middle of this crisis and not just try to secure wheat past each other. So that's the first thing I would say could be a potential lesson here. That could come from below, from them, from their own efforts, or it could be a US-led or UN-led. But thinking about how they can work together and gain some agency in this moment, those countries that may have surplus. Either nearby or through shipping or whatever should sell to these countries at a fair price. Right and have a 1 price for every country involved and that way again, keep prices down, make it accessible and alleviate some of the prices, obviously within this, like capitalist market system, aside from just food aid itself. Um. So it can come from anywhere and interestingly, right? And this could be pressure either on Ukraine and you've all might wanna stress this, it could be pressure on Russia, it could be pressure on European mediators, um, wherever this needs to come from, the more we can act as one, the more we can lower prices and get what we need to the countries in question. Zelensky, is, this is not, um, he's very aware of this, right? And he has been ringing this alarm bell for a couple of weeks and he was like, listen, Russia provokes a global wheat crisis, but really, again, affecting immediately the Middle East and Africa, and saying there's a crisis here. They need to be working together. And he called on all elite, business elite, political elite to start taking action. I know my wheat is just so conversation, so amazing. Even Ian's kids want to hear this. But yeah, so thinking about how to coordinate, thinking where that is. Um, Yuval and I, and he can speak to this about Turkey, yeah. maybe leading some mediation efforts here, although I haven't seen any movement on this, but to try to break this blockade and get some wheat out of, um, out of the, for these countries.
1: Sure, and I, and I think sort of like for the context, of what I think what you're referring to is that the current impasse is that. Essentially, several things have happened leading to the shortage. 1 is that Russia is imposing a blockade on Ukraine uh, in the black sea. And all of this, again, when we refer to like the map of Ukraine that we've seen a number of times, Ukraine's access to the Black Sea is not as wide as it used to be. And so Russia has a blockade around like around um, Ukraine's ports. So what Ukraine has done is it has mined the area around Odessa in particular. So Russia's position is if only Ukraine were to demine the areas around Odessa, well, then we can get all the grain flowing out. We can solve this food crisis. Ukraine's position is, you are not trustworthy people, and we cannot trust you not to take military advantage of this and not try to seize, uh, to engage in an amphibious uh, assault upon Odessa and cut off all of Ukraine from the Black Sea. So in that, Turkey has once again inserted itself into the group chat by uh, proposing that it would do some of the demining. In order to be this trusted third party to help bring the grain out of uh, Ukraine. And again, part of that is Turkey is not maybe the most trustworthy uh, third-party candidate here, um, specifically because it is not helping NATO on issues that Ukraine would like. And by slowing down um, the, let's say, combined or joint actions of NATO and of the Western partners, It also seems to be taking the side of Russia in terms of getting the grain out on terms that are favorable to Russia. And there also have been reports that Turkey is buying the grain that has been taken or stolen from Ukraine itself. So in all of these things, there are solutions that are available, but there isn't the pressure that is being placed on Turkey or Russia to do anything. And this is where Ukraine is getting um, its source of irritation, is that it is expected to be the one to concede on these issues first.
2: You know, it's funny, listening to you talk and all these excellent points just made me realize how focused we are on the moment. And and, and all of this absolutely valid 100%, but I'm just, now that I've I've really thought about this more, this is going to be a problem for a very long time. A very long time and, and we, we've talked about, it, and you can, you know, talk about how long you anticipate, you know, predictions about how long this war is going to go. Um, but I don't even if we solved this tomorrow, I can't, I don't see i I don't see this getting better. This, uh, even if we, let me rephrase, even if we got the, the grain sitting at the port. To those that need it, which is a relief, I, I'm not sure how this is going to look year 2 or year 3 from now. Um, and I'm getting increasingly concerned, um, but we're so focused on the moment as we again, we have current mouths to feed that I, you know. Even if Turkey may, even if there's a deal brokered. Right, which sounds very not likely what is, what are we going to do for Ukraine to supplement Ukrainian wheat next year? No, I know we don't have an answer. I just. I'm, I'm concerned and that should be highlighted and blasted out more.
1: Sure, and so if we sort of then think, you know, barring us navy or nato ships go in and basically provide armed armed convoys to to get this grain out to apply basically the world war one example and, and you sort of had sussed out like what are the different blocks but it would be something to the effect of when you put all that together it is the united states eu un all together providing emergency humanitarian relief right now which means that there has to be A worldwide coordination of shipping, which means that there has to be a imposition that this shipping is more important than regular commercial shipping. At the same time that whatever is being produced in the United States and Canada to be exported, essentially to create more planting now, to have more grain in the next season, to have greater production, greater shipping, to have none of that be disturbed by anything else that's going on in the world, to not essentially continue um, inflationary issues and things of that nature. And you just wonder, where does the political will come from to provide the state capacity to put these things in action right now? And that and- seems to be like, at least to me, like the one of the more frightening aspects is, is Benin gonna be important enough? Is Egypt important enough to have all of these really difficult uh, decisions Be made and then implemented by those whom, as you said at the very beginning, are not the ones who are acutely um, uh, affected by this.
2: Yes, that I mean, incredibly succinct uh, summary there, you've all very impressive. But yeah, and that's what I I, that's why as we talk this out, I realize these countries are going to be um, left behind, I think, and that's sad, but it doesn't have to be and there is a political moment and um the only way out of this is coordinating it's coordinating and we have to coordinate and again where that comes from could be uh, a western led it could be a non-western led but there will be some kind of absolutely necessary coordinating and i'm not trying to put this on transcom us transcom has done amazing things um and i'm sure they don't need one more lift effort um but someone is going to need to figure out, you know, where to get surplus wheat and how they're going to get it there, because without the transportation piece, the whole, the whole conversations moved.
0: Yeah, no, I, I think you're uh plus transcom, because I think they have, they have handled more unexpected stuff in the last couple of years than they ever imagined. Um, and uh, it, it's really a, a testament to the, uh, just the the power and capability of global strategic lift that they can bring. Um, but like, they can't be the answer to everything. Um, and so I, as you're talking about like this, the multi-year thing, I'm wondering in terms of the political will, like even even if the will were there, do you, if the will were there, and like both the political will and sort of the goodwill um, for those potential suppliers like the US and Canada um, and, and other nations, do you think there that there's the, the economic resilience on their part right now to to start these significant shifts because we um I, you know and we talked a little bit you know earlier here before we recorded um things are not great over here either i mean we, we got we have enough food to eat right but it's getting more expensive there have been shortages um you know at least on the u.s side we're dealing with you know, rising inflation, which is which is hurting purchasing power, dealing with rising gas prices, which for that shipping and that freight, that's going to make all of that more expensive. And uh, and we are, you know, the world is still feeling supply chain shocks from COVID, right? That stuff has not caught up. Um, So even if, if the if the willpower is there, do you think that the systems that would have to provide that surplus and that excess and then absorb, the additional cost, the additional debt, um, the additional diversion of resources to different things. Um, are, do you think we have the, the resilience to, to execute that and, and so, not have some other knock-on effects?
2: I would say, no, I don't know. You know, I'm a, I like to be an optimist. Like I know the realist in me takes over all the time and the pragmatist, um, but I'm gonna hope so, yes. Um, although my husband says hope is not a plan, so maybe not. But, you know, let's go back to World War One for a second, right? These are these, you know, the, the allies of Europe who are experiencing this wheat crisis, it takes them two years to actually get it together and create a coordinated, a body in which they, that allows them to coordinate all of these wheat stuff, right? To say, all right, we're going to give you, we're going to, we're going to take away our sovereignty on this issue. We're going to let this body, and you know, the three, four, five people who are representing it take over and dictate food: food prices, food transportation, um, who orders what and needs. So it takes the Allies two years to kind of get to that place. Almost three, really, by the time the machinery, right? They negotiate it. 1916, it's put into place in 1917. Three years. So that's how long it took, and you can imagine, right, bread rights in Italy. Uh, prices are obscenely high in the UK. We know the people in France are suffering. So that's that pressure cooker World War One takes that long to get it together. Um, so while there are models, there are templates, there are all these things we can interact. I don't know. I don't know. It's not looking great.
1: Cooperation is always a choice, right? I, and what I'm afraid of when when hearing you talk is that we'll go through every. Everything before we get to the thing that was obvious from the get go, but which imposed a, sl- the slightest bit of, uh. Of pain at home, or just sort of ink when I say pain, I just mean, like, increased costs, which obviously, like, goes into, like, inflation as the issue of the day. But ultimately, there's no silver bullet. It's just making the sacrifice and then finding in essence the, the small amount of, like, technical expertise to then say, Here's how we're going to implement the political
2: will. Well, let me go back to Turkey. So, you know, I don't know much about Turkish wheat, but they are a wheat exporter, right? They're local, right? So there are, you know, Kazakhstan, Turkey, if they have enough surplus that we could then supplement elsewhere, right? Those are some potential solutions to start to ship wheat over there. Um, and I don't know what Turkey is, da- you know, I don't know their export market and who's buying Turkish wheat and what they're willing to do. But if this stuff, corridor doesn't open, we can put it there's, there's, there's an ask there from Turkey to say, you're a wheat exporter, you have wheat, you might not be able to open this. Will you help out? Not to,
1: but. Yeah, but- so certainly like, and I think bringing in an idea that you had from before is what are the export subsidies that, let's say, the US and its allies can provide to Turkey, Kazakhstan, uh, others? in order to provide for export of like grains, wheat, things of that nature, that is consistent with WTO rules because it is for humanitarian purpose and not in the normal course of commercial enterprise.
2: Yeah. So, and I don't know uh, if you have other questions, but I will say this quote that I came across, we don't use it in the book, uh, but it just, it, it struck me as so poignant. So bear with me, folks. History celebrates the battlefields whereon we meet our death, but scorns the plowed fields whereby we thrive. It knows the name of king's bastard children, but cannot tell us the origin of wheat. That is the way of the human folly. And it spoke to me, it's by um a French entomologist, Jean-Henri Fab, but it spoke to me. I'm like, oh, I know so many battles. I can tell you battlefields, I can tell you political elites, but I can tell you nothing about wheat. And clearly. We need to know about wheat because it's connected to political stability and elites, because it comes, it's both the cause of battle and results shortages from battle. So these, these, this quote, like, I love it because it gets these three things that are just so clearly connected, political order, food, and warfare.
0: Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's daunting to think that we're, uh, you know, this has, something like this has happened before. and uh you know we're just talking about again before the recording uh the we had impacts you know the collapse of russia among other things in world war one was a uh in an internal turmoil caused by that and i think we're in in the last few years like uh you know and especially watching since february we're reliving things that like multiple generations have not felt and so there's no Sort of fresh institutional memory on how to do anything or how to deal with it. Because, you know, maybe we just never thought we'd be in this position again. But hey, it turns out from pandemics to global food shortages to, you know, naked wars of conquest that, uh, um, you know, we're, we're not done with that yet,
1: if ever. Um, bring back the 19th century, bring back World War I. You know, and just hearing about you sort of talk about the destruction of Ukraine in this essence uh i was recently in in Europe, and I read about you know yet another field in Belgium uh where basically like farmers doing the business, and they found uh an unexploded shell from World war one and you then think what is the amount of unexploded ordnance that's in inside Ukraine right now and what is the environmental uh, like impact? And you talked about there's so much bombing that like the subsoil is coming to the top. That's going to be an uh-huh. issue. When, as you as you were saying earlier, what's going to be the multi-year effect of this is that there's probably a lot, lot of uranium, a lot of unexploded ordnance inside the fields of eastern Ukraine. And so when will, in essence, the status quo ex come back, and like. That, to me, is just thinking, oh, my God, is there going to be a farmer in Ukraine in, like, 2082, being like, oh, shoot, we need to find, like, the bomb robots to, like, take care of this.
2: Well, I mean, we just had D-Day, right? And I'm sure many of you have toured a a battlefield in Europe, right? And if you look, you saw images from D-Day if you haven't seen it yourself, right? You can see... um, all on uh, the hills overlooking the beaches, and I've been lucky enough to go out to Normandy myself, right? It's just pockmarked. It's completely pockmarked still to this day. And we still hear about farmers in France from the Battle of the Somme or Verdun finding all of this ordinance. Um so I it take, it, you know, I wish I remembered how long it took, but it took France a couple of decades to get their farm land back up and running. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if this does take Ukraine best case scenario war ends tomorrow years to to get this solved
0: yeah you know I, I as we're telling stories you know i've i've after what was it after college before um i went to basic school i got my parents took me on uh, a two-week tour of battlefields in france and belgium and i i saw i saw the normandy stuff you're talking about but i i remember very vividly going to vimy ridge um which i i'm why? Why was I there at a Canadian site? Well, I'm, I'm, my background is half Canadian, half American, so it was of interest. But you know, to to your points, we drove by farms where they have their little stacks of shells that they pulled out that year, and you know, the the fact that there's like a basic civic TTP of disposing of unexploded ordnance from 100 years ago is just not something we have. We on this side of the ocean have no capacity to understand that.
2: You know, to this point of our being on the side and it reminded me of thinking about this, you know. I'm interested in when do we sacrifice and what do we sacrifice for? And I think studying war, we we talk about sacrifice a lot and earlier it was brought up with inflation with political discord, right? Are we already. Are we going to be able to sacrifice with our high fuel prices to support the war in Ukraine? Right? So we're already thinking it's being internalized. But, you know, the United States was very in tune to the European wheat problems. They were they had um, save wheat campaigns all throughout World War One um, to help preserve American wheat to be shipped over. Um, so one of the posters I, I really like, uh, food will win the war. You must come here seeking, you came here seeking freedom. You must now help preserve it. Wheat is needed for the allies, waste nothing. Um, another one I like, um will you help the women of france save wheat so there is precedent you know i know our memory our memories are short but there is precedent for sacrificing wheat right eating less finding substitutes and this precedent you know around the globe can be done it can be enacted um we just need to remember that it can be done
0: yeah and and i think if if we're trying to to look at some positive stuff um, also I, I think it's fair to say that our our ability to generate higher production on the same amount of land uh has probably only gone up since World War One in terms of, you know, whether it's, you know, better fertilizers or more efficiency or or even, you know, the use of GPS guided unmanned tractors to do more efficient, you know, plowing and planting. You know, we we've we learned a lot about how to make how to make wheat in the hundred years since. So uh it may be really time to, to put that to the test. And, and you know, going back to the, the farmer's fields, given the Russian dud rate of munitions, they're probably gonna be digging stuff up from those fields for a long time. So we're, we're gonna have to figure out how to, how to maximize our, our ability to offset that.
1: Um, it's a guy's business idea. We form a firm, a UXO uh, unexploded ordnance. We're just going into Ukraine next couple of decades, we're just digging, digging Russian duds out of the earth, endless business. What do you think?
0: You jest, but there, there may be, <laughs> um, I, and I, I only say that because, uh, I, you know, my memories from Iraq and Afghanistan, where, you know, certainly the standard of living is different than, you know, Ukraine versus Iraq and Afghanistan, but you know, there are markets for, for scrap metal for, um, for excess explosives, not always good markets. Um, you know, but the the volume of metal that's now buried in the earth, war, wars generate their own industries, right? Um, you know, which is why we would have scrappers looking to catch 50 cal casings from our helicopters when we were testing our guns, because there was a market for it. Um, so it could be there. There's some sort of market force that will help remove UXO um, from all of those fields and, and get them back into, uh, you know, into production sooner, maybe than later, you know, we, we can hope.
1: I'll put that on the whiteboard next episode. We'll come back to it.
0: <laughs> okay. Yeah. we'll we'll do some brainstorming in the meantime, actually. But so before, uh, um, unless you have anything else for, uh, Rosella, I did have, uh, kind of one thing to, we've been looking a lot on, on the stresses on the, you know, you know, obviously the impact on Ukrainian GDP and in industry and just overall is bad and, and the cascading effects of loss of wheat economically and in terms of civil c- civic stability and the consumers also bad but we've talked about this before there's there are lots of different clocks running here maybe you've all if you could sort of give us a, an update on the conditions in the russian economy side now because um one of the clocks running is how much longer can their economy absorb the sanctions the burn rate of their uh, their save war chest um Compared to the clock of when does the, when does the food crisis become critical? You know, or when, when do the, you know, the Western supporting countries really have to make hard decisions about it. Um, where, where's the Russian economic clock right now? And you also talked about the manpower situation, right? Like looking. New draft class coming through the summer. There's a clock ticking there as well, but what's, uh, does what the Russian economic clock look like right now?
1: So sure. So. In essence, when we think about the war, it began in February. Uh, we're now in the 4th month of the conflict. In terms of the data that's coming from Russian official sources, as well as economists who still live in like Russian economists in Russia. The estimation is that when you look at the big picture, there's at least a year. Of Russia left sort of in its context. And when I say, like, the big picture context. The shortages on industrial production are already basically at a critical level. Um, the Russians are living worse than before in terms of all the sort of like major indicators. There isn't yet food shortages in the cities, but one of the sort of like canaries in the coal mine that I always look towards is what is regional indebtedness, because the, like Moscow, St. Petersburg, are wealthy places there's plenty of money in those, in like those cities it is in the regions of russia that indebtedness is now reaching basically year over year more than 30% above like sort of on average in most parts of the country in terms of the increased indebtedness that money has to come from somewhere or else we get a run on the bank we can also see that in terms of russia's actual like central government spending they're spending about 40% more Year over year in the last couple of months compared to the previous year, which is roughly attributable to military spending, plus bailing out the economy indebtedness of people. One of the sort of curious statistics that, that I came across is that 70% of personal and household debt in, um, in Russia is held by the, the people who do not live in Moscow and St. Petersburg and 45% of all positive bank balances in Russia are held by people who live in just those two those two cities. So what we're going to see is not like this one moment in which like Russia falls apart like some jalopy where like you know the the windshield bumps out and like the wheels fall out but just an economy of shortages, an economy of things not working, an economy of things not being available become apparent already like right now. And that would just become more dramatic over the course of basically the rest of 22 and into the first quarter of 2023. And that's why, in essence, the next basically three months are the most important. The next conscript class will be coming online sometime in September, October, November. The Russian economy basically has until that time, maybe until the beginning of 2023 before basically the emergencies are in. That's why Russia's trying to win as much as possible, as quickly as possible, in a short war. Because in a long war, they are not going to uh do very well. Because the long war favors the Ukrainians who have more basically soldiers and ostensibly more weaponry coming in. And that is basically the timelines that we're seeing. Russia needs to win this summer. Ukraine needs to not lose this summer.
0: Okay. Now that's great. Thanks for uh for that and i I'm, i think in the future episodes we'll we'll be looking on sort of where those clocks are running um on, on all sides um because this uh it, this is kind of a sidebar um you know but talking about the the issues of long and short wars this has been a recurring theme in some of like the like the the military discussion threads that i hang out on and uh there's just this this sort of mind-boggling like historical it's a vampire idea because it keeps coming back and it won't die but people keep trying it the notion that you like you can have like a short sharp war and um and and that it's possible to have a, a complete victory in a short time and uh, the historical precedent for that is not great um short wars almost always turn into longer wars which then become a a battle of resilience and uh attrition in the sense of uh who can who can afford to lose more and who can regenerate more over time. So uh,
1: I think, well, this will be another,
0: another little data point that the short sharp war just is not a thing.
1: And I think in the next episode, we will call upon uh, the work of um, Jeffrey Blaney and Jim Fearon to talk about what causes short versus long wars. Is it a problem where we don't know the resolve of the other side or the capabilities of the other side? Or do we not trust what the post-war outcome will look like? Can we not trust the others to commit to particular uh, post-war outcomes and I think that may be a way of thinking about these time horizons you know running these clocks the conflict and then uh, one of the main drivers which is the state of the Russian economy and I think that may be a good subject for next week
0: yeah no that that sounds great Um, um, a good thing to look at I I have one more point and this is going to be a terrible pun so I ask you to forgive me in advance But as we've been talking about food production, fertilizer plays a role. And there's been another type of fertilizer that's been in the news recently. And that's uh, the the stuff that comes out of Vladimir Putin. I've been seeing a couple of these stories about his security um, detail, basically having little doggy bags to, uh, to, to do a little poop scoop wherever he goes at home or abroad, um, and take it back with them so that foreign intelligence can't comb through or do whatever it is they want to do on uh on on Putin's number two so I my question to you is I've I is there any one is there any credence to these um to, to your knowledge two if there is what does that indicate about Putin's like mind space right now um and then maybe a three is there have also been you know regular rumors that uh, Putin's health is not good um is is this a particular is this a possible indicator that he is really trying to keep from public view um some serious problem that's affecting his body
1: braelle i'll sp- I'll spare you the smelly situation uh, that you know you don't have to step in it and to say this that so Kim jong un also like travels in the same way um as as we know from uh basically like modern medical technology, a lot can be said about a person's health from their poop. Um, and so I think it's probably very clear that, I mean, the icy hand of death comes for us all, and Putin is has a lot very stressful life. He's not like super old, but I mean, he is getting up there. He's older than the average life expectancy of a Russian male. Is that a very stressful life? We also know from, histor- from historical record um, that when Khrushchev came to, uh, Khrushchev came to the United States during his trip that the CIA did intersect his feces in order to basically see, like, what was the health of the person. One of the reasons that Putin was always meeting with people across those, like, ridiculously long tables is because they weren't getting, they weren't doing, like, you know, those biomedical swabs. A lot can be said about a person's health, their medical history from their saliva, from their fingerprints, from their feces, from their urine. And so Putin is just taking it to its logical uh, extreme. If his person is basically the safety of Russia, then anything that can be done to safeguard foreign hands from his person and his production is something that is a security issue for Russia. And I'm sure that if someone was actually able to get his poop, they would see exactly how sick he is. And that information could then, Lead into a very different um, bargaining environment for Russia vis-a-vis its adversaries. Because if people knew this guy only has six months to a year left to live, how does that change the way that other countries interact with Russia?
0: That, that's another clock. Um, another clock. Yeah. That, um, that's a dirty clock. Yeah. Well, uh, at, you know, at least they're not—they're not, you know, using the line that I remember from the movie *The Interview*, where they said about Kim Jong on you know he just he doesn't poop right he's he's too busy and too grand to do that stuff so um at, at least we know Putin is is a mere mortal after all all right on that note <laughs> um any uh any final closing thoughts from either of you
2: everybody poops
1: everybody poops
0: yeah yeah all right I'm, I'm gonna have to check the uh the e-box on uh on anchor when I post this just so everybody's ready for the conversation Okay. Um, well, to, uh, to both of you, thank you very much for joining. You know, I know it's kind of off hours and the weekend's about to start, but it's good that we're keeping this habit pattern going. Brazil, um, especially thanks for, uh, for sort of, um, sort of Shanghai to you in here, uh, but always, always appreciate your willingness to come and share your insights with us. And, you know, I think it's uh, uh, another testament to the support that the non-resident fellows can give for the CULAC center and that we're able to have access uh to fantastic knowledge and uh expertise from both of you and actually one thing about this um you both just mentioned something about book manuscripts um you've all you said you just finished yours so maybe uh do you just want to kind of give us a quick update on where those projects are when when we can expect them to hit the streets
2: i'll go first uh so uh feeding allies war and weed in world war one with paul post it's uh doing a final round of second round of reviews in academic world so hopefully uh, sooner than later, and, uh, I will definitely blast out if we get a book contract in the next week or 2 tag, the crew center, a good friend of this uh, book manuscript all along. Um, and if you are interested in Wheat in World War 1, I, I did a broadcast, like, again, a couple years ago on it. Um, so you can get some of the juicy bits there. The weedy bits, the weedy bits.
0: There you go now that that's a good point. And in fact, I think I will, uh, I'll make sure to make a link back to that in the notes for this episode. So, uh, so folks can have everything right at their fingertips and you've all uh, you just said
1: you, you just
0: slap the table on one. Right?
1: Yeah. So I'm in in the same 1 just turned in. So, second revisions, you write a book, you send it to the referees. Famously reviewer two has a reputation within academia. Uh, just to give you a sense of how vicious the 2nd reviewer can be. Uh, mine challenged my unsighted assertion that vladimir lenin was a prolific writer on socialist governance to give you a sense of like what my life has been like over the last couple weeks
2: but you will tell us the title
1: i i don't even remember what it is right now but i think it is uh, (laughs) the russian economy um yeah so it's because it it, yeah so it's part of a so (laughs) it's called the russian economy and what i really wanted to title it was uh russia's turns to the market um, because the argument of the book is that Russia has engaged a number of times in pro-market economic reform, in the Tsar's times, in Soviet times, as well as in uh, contemporary Russian Federation times, but that the, these market reforms are not sincere but are only pursued when Russia's external security environment is so threatening that this is the best available, last available option. And so this, the basically the book is talking about How is the Russian economy run, which is basically about Russian political culture, which I think we'll talk about in the next episode. Um, And it has a lot on Peter, the great, which is very timely. Um, But ultimately, it argues that Russia fundamentally cannot do the market and it can't do the market because it cuts into the ability of the Tsar or general secretary or president to pick and choose winners in the economy and picking and choosing winners in the economy is one of the key things that every autocrat must have. And that's why Russia's on a, what's famous in the Russia studies world, on a treadmill of reform.
2: It sounds well, amazing.
1: Yeah,
0: no, uh, we look forward to that. And, and and the way you characterize it just reminded me of one of my uh, uh, favorite quotes from GoldenEye, where you've got Russian former KGB slash entrepreneur after the fall, complaining about how the free market economy is gonna be the end of him. Uh, but he's he's trying to adapt, but his KGB mind just can't quite accept that He may not have full control over it. So, and uh, sorry, I can hear my son talking about some sort of shapes in the background. So maybe uh, maybe that's a sign that that we're at a good stopping point. All right. Well, you. again, yeah, again, thank you both very much. Enjoy your thank weekend, you. and uh, I will get this out as soon as I can. All right. Take care, guys. Be well.
1: Bye. Bye.